Zen has been summed up in four statements. A direct transmission outside scriptures and apart from tradition. No dependence on words and letters. Direct pointing to the human mind and seeing into one's own nature and becoming Buddha. does deal with a domain of experience that can't be talked about. But one must remember at the same time that there's really nothing at all that can be talked about adequately. And the whole art of poetry is to say what can't be said. Every artist feels when he gets to the end of his work that there's something absolutely essential that was left out. So Zen has always described itself as a finger pointing at the moon. In the Sanskrit saying, Tattvamasi, that art thou, Zen is concerned with that. That, of course, is the word which is used for Brahman, the absolute reality in Hindu philosophy. And you're it, only in disguise, and disguised so well that you've forgotten it. Unfortunately, ideas like the ultimate ground of being, the self, Brahman, ultimate reality, the great void, all that is very, very abstract talk. And Zen is concerned with a much more direct way of coming to an understanding of that, or thatness, as it's called, tathata, in Sanskrit. I think, first of all, the appeal of Zen lies in its unusual quality of humor. 
religions aren't, as a rule, humorous in any way. Religions are serious. And when one looks at Zen art and reads Zen stories, it is quite apparent that something is going on here which isn't serious in the ordinary sense, however sincere it may be. The next thing I think that has appealed to Westerners is that Zen has no doctrines. There is nothing you have to believe and it doesn't moralize at you very much. It's not particularly concerned with morals at all. It's a field of inquiry rather like physics and you don't expect a physicist to discuss authoritatively about morals even though as a human being he has moral interests and problems. But as a physicist he is not a moral authority. Or if you go to an oculist or ophthalmologist to have your eyes adjusted, that is so you can see clearly. And Zen is spiritual ophthalmology. as when hungry eat, when tired sleep. And when the student got that description, he said, well, doesn't everybody do that? And the master said, they don't. When hungry, they don't just eat, but think of 10,000 things. When tired, they don't just sleep, but dream innumerable dreams. The fascination of Zen to the West is that it promises a sudden insight into something that is always supposed to take years and years and years. The psychoanalysts, if you're mixed up, they tell you the troubles you've got yourself into over all these years can't be undone in a day. 
therefore it will take many, many sessions, maybe twice a week for several years for you to get straightened out. The Christians say that if you embark on a path of spiritual discipline, you get yourself a spiritual director and uh, submit yourself to the will of God, but you may not get into the high states of contemplative prayer for very many years. The Hindus, the Vedanta society people, the Buddhists also say will require many long years of meditation, very hard concentration, very difficult practice, and stern discipline. And then maybe you will make enough progress in this life to become a monk in your next life. And then you'll make enough progress to enter some of the preliminary stages leading to Buddhahood but it's all likely to take you many, many incarnations. But when this artist Hasegawa was asked, how does one see into Zen? He said, it may take you three seconds. It may take you 30 years. I mean that. This book called the Mumonkan, which means the gateless gate, contains such stories as the student, I say student rather than monk, because Zen students are not monks in our sense of the word monk. Our monks take life vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. And to make the grade, you're expected to spend your whole life in the monastic state. But I call the Zen monk a student because he's more like a student in a theological seminary. He may stay much longer than the usual three years. He may stay 30 years or so, but it's always uh, possible for him to leave with dignity and to graduate and to be go into lay life or become a regular priest who keeps charge of a temple, can get married and have a family. And uh, only very few graduates of the Zen monastery become Roshi, that Roshi means simply old teacher. That is the man in charge of the spiritual development of the students. So one of these students in the book says to the master Joshu, I have been here in this monastery for some time and I've had no instruction from you. The master said, have you had breakfast? Yes. Then go wash your bowl. And the monk was awakened. Another story in this book concerns a master who said, when a cow walks out of the enclosure, the corral, the horns and head, the four legs and the body all get through, but not the tail. How is it that the tail can't get through? And nobody could answer this. 
Another story tells of a certain master called Bai Zhang, who was so good that he had hundreds of students, and they couldn't all be housed in one monastery. So he had to find one of the students who could also be a master, and so he arranged a test. He put down a pitcher in front of them all and said, without making an assertion or without making a denial, tell me, what is this? And the senior monk said it couldn't be called a piece of wood. The teacher didn't accept this answer. But the monastery cook came forward and kicked the pitcher over and walked away. And he got the job. stories resemble jokes in this sense. A joke is told to make you laugh. When you get the point of a joke, you laugh spontaneously. But if the point has to be explained to you, you don't laugh so well, you force a laugh. There is some kind of sudden impact between the punchline and the laugh. And so in exactly the same way with these stories, there is expected to be something else than laughter, which is sudden insight into the nature of being. Zen came to a master. Often, you know, they approach the Zen master with a kind of key question. What is the fundamental principle of Buddhism? Or why did 
the bearded barbarian come from the west because Zen is supposed to have been brought into China by a Hindu named Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma is always represented as having a huge bushy beard and very fierce eyes. Now Bodhidharma always insisted that he had nothing to teach. And so why did he come? That's one of the fundamental questions. When he first came to China, sometime a little before 500 AD, he was interviewed by the Emperor Wu of Liang. The Emperor was a great patron of Buddhism and said, we have caused many monasteries to be built, monks and nuns to be ordained, and the scriptures to be translated into Chinese. What is the merit of this? And Bodhidharma said, no merit whatever. Well, that really set the emperor back because the popular understanding of Buddhism is that you do good things like that, re religious things, and you acquire merit. And this leads you to better and better lives in the future so that you will eventually become liberated. And so his, he was completely set back. So he said, well, what is the first principle of the holy doctrine? And Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness and nothing holy. Or in vast emptiness, there is nothing holy. So the emperor said, who is it then that stands before us? The implication being, aren't you supposed to be a holy man? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. Now, it is saying too much, I warn you, to say that Zen is trying to point to the physical universe so that you can look at it without forming ideas about it. That is saying too much, but it is the general idea. It's in the direction of being the right idea. Zen people speak of the virtue of what they call mushin, which means no mind, or munen, no thought. This is not an anti-intellectual attitude. The ordinary simple person is just as bamboozled by thinking as a university professor.
can think intellectually in a no-think way. That's the art. It doesn't mean not to have any thoughts at all. It means not to be fooled by thoughts, not to be hypnotized by the forms of speech and uh, images that we have for the world, not to be hypnotized by them into thinking that that is the way the world really is. So if I say, this is a fan, it isn't. To begin with, fan is a noise. And this doesn't make the noise fan. But it can be many other things than a fan. It could be a back scratcher. Very well. All sorts of things. Don't let words limit the possibilities of life. Actually, this fan has an inscription on it written by a Zen master who is a hundred years old. And it says, I don't understand, I don't know anything about it. Anybody who says that he knows what Zen is, is a fraud. Nobody knows. Just like you don't know who you are. All this business about your name and your accomplishments, your certificates, what your friends say about you, you know very well that's not you. But the problem to know who you are is the problem of smelling your own nose. When the great Japanese master Dogen came back from China in about the year 1200 to bring his school of Zen into Japan, they asked him, what did you learn in China? He said, the eyes are horizontal, the nose is perpendicular. So you see, it is this kind of way of going about things, this method of Zen, that has so fascinated the West. And everybody who, who reads about Zen wonders if somehow, you see, this understanding is right under your nose. You know how it is sometimes you get a crowd of people to come into a room and you put something in the room that's absurd. Like, suppose there was a balloon floating on the ceiling. People could come in and not notice it at all. Or, uh, you know, somebody puts on something weird, some kind of a funny necktie or something. And you say to a person, well, 
haven't you noticed? <laughs> a woman in a new dress, you know? <laughs> haven't you noticed? I said, well, no, what, what, what is it? What, what, what? You know, it's right under your nose. They're staring you in the face, but you don't see it. And Zen is exactly like that. very obvious. The master Bokuju was asked, we have to dress and eat every day and how do we escape from all that? In other words, how do we get out of routine? And he said, we dress, we eat. He said, I don't understand. Bokuju said, if you don't understand, put on your clothes and eat your food. <laughs> Another Zen master in quite recent times was interviewing a student. You see, all these stories I'm telling you are connected. And what I want you to do is to grasp intuitively the connection. Was uh, interviewing a student and he said, um, get up and walk across the room. He got up and walked and came back. He said, where are your footprints? Let me say, having presented you with all these fireworks, let me say a few sober things about Zen as a historical phenomenon. Zen is a subdivision of Mahayana Buddhism. And as you know, that is the school of Buddhism which is concerned with realizing Buddha nature in this world. Not necessarily by going off to the mountains, or by renouncing family life, everyday life, etc., etc., as if that were an entanglement, but realizing in the midst of life the possibility of becoming a Buddha. And uh, so the great ideal personality of Mahayana Buddhism is the Bodhisattva, a word now applied to somebody who has attained nirvana, 
but instead of disappearing, comes back in many, many guises. Zen is Mahayana, Indian Mahayana Buddhism, translated into Chinese and therefore deeply influenced by Taoism and Confucianism. Zen monks brought Confucian ideas to Japan. And the origins of Zen lie actually around the year 400 and 14, at which time a great Hindu scholar by the name of Kumarajiva was translating with a group of assistants the Buddhist sutras into Chinese. One of his students taught that all beings whatsoever have the capacity to become Buddha, to become enlightened. even rocks and stones and that even heretics and evil doers have the Buddha nature or Buddha potentiality in them and everybody said he was a dreadful heretic but then a text called the Nirvana Sutra came from India which said precisely that so everybody had to admit that this man was right he also began to teach that awakening must be instantaneous. It's a kind of all-or-nothing state. I don't mean that there aren't degrees of its intensity, but once you see the principle, you see the whole thing. As they say, when the bottom falls out of the bucket, all the water goes together.
your real mind, while all those emotions are going on, is imperturbable. Just like when you move your hand through the sky, you don't leave a track. The birds don't stain the blue when they pass by. And when the water reflects the image of the geese, the reflection doesn't stick there. So, to be pure-minded in the Zen way, or clear-minded is a better way of translating it, is not to have no thoughts. It's not a question of not thinking about dirty things. One great master of the Tang dynasty, when asked, what is Buddha? Believe it or not, answered, a dried turd. So, it's not that kind of purity. It is purity, clarity, in the sense that your mind isn't sticky. You don't harbor grievances. You don't be attached to the past. You go with it, with life. Life is flowing all the time. That is the Tao, the flow of life. You are going along with it, whether you want to or not. You're like people in a stream. You can swim against the stream, but you'll still be moved along by it. And all you'll do is wear yourself out in futility. But if you swim with the stream, the whole strength of the stream is yours. Of course, the difficulty that so many of us have is finding out which way the stream is going. But suddenly, as it goes, all the past vanishes, the future has not yet arrived. And there is only one place to be, which is here and now. same in a way as the Sanskrit bodhi, awakening from the illusion of being a separate ego locked up in a bag of skin, discovering that you are the whole universe. And of course, if you do discover that, and you do see into it all of a sudden, it's a shock, because your whole common sense is turned directly inside out. Everything is the same as you've always seen it, but completely different. Because you know who you are. What the devil were you worrying about? What was all that fuss? What was all that to do? Well, you see, it was part of the game.
Everything from one point of view is fuss. And to do. To do, to do. What is there to do? But when you wake up, you see, and discover that all this to do wasn't you, what you thought was you, but was the entire works, which we could just call it, that you're it and it is it, and everything is it, and it does all things that are done, then that is a great surprise. But it sounds tasteless. It sounds empty. It sounds void. Because if I say, well, you're all it, that is a statement without the slightest logical sense. Because we don't know what is it unless there's something that isn't it. But if it's both all is's and all isn'ts, then we can't think about it. Nevertheless, it is highly possible to see that that's so in a way that's so vivid it brings your heart into all your five mouths. once asked, what is the Tao, the way, replied, walk on. Actually, go. As we say, go man, go. Go, go. <laughs> <laughs> and it is this aspect of Zen, which is what is truly understood by detachment, or having a mind that isn't sticky, and that isn't stopped at any point in its whole working. To be stopped at a certain point is what is called having a doubt. As when one fumbles or wobbles or hesitates about something. Trying to find the right solution for the circumstances by thinking it out in a situation where there really is no time to think it out. So that when a Zen teacher asks his disciple a question, he expects an immediate answer, as it were, without thought or premeditation.
they speak in Zen, they use a phrase to have a mind of no deliberation. And they also speak of a kind of person, a man who doesn't depend on anything. That is to say, on a formula, on a theory, on a belief to govern his action. And this person who doesn't stick anywhere is like Dante's image at the end of the Paradiso, where he says in the presence of the vision of God, but my volition now and my desires were moved as a wheel revolving evenly by love that moves the sun and other stars. But if you are brought up to believe yourself split, I remember my mother used to say to me when I did naughty things, she said, Alan, that's not like you. <laughs> so I had, you know, some conception of what was like me in my better moments, that is to say, in the moments when I remembered what my mother would like me to do. And so that split is implanted in us all. And because of our being split-minded, we are always dithering. Is the choice that I am about to make of the higher self or of the lower self? Is it of the spirit or is it of the flesh? Is the word that I have received of the Lord or is it of the devil? And nobody can decide. Because if you knew how to choose, you wouldn't have to. It is important to overcome split-mindedness, but what is the way? 
Where can you start from if you're already split? A Taoist saying is that when the wrong man uses the right means, the right means work in the wrong way. So what are you to do? How can you get off it and get moving? Fundamentally, of course, you have to be surprised into it. Winthrop Sargent, not so long ago, interviewed a great Zen priest in Kyoto who posed to him the question, who are you? And he said, well, I'm Winthrop Sargent. And the priest laughed. No, he said, I don't mean that. I mean, who are you really? Well, then he went into all sorts of abstractions about his being a particular human being and so on. He was a journalist and so on. And the priest just laughed and said, no. Then the, the, he, the priest just tossed off the conversation and a little later made a joke. And Sargent laughed. And he said, there you are. There was an army officer who once came to a Zen master and said, I have heard a story about a man who kept a goose in a bottle. And it was uh, growing very rapidly. And he didn't want to break the bottle and he didn't want to hurt the goose. So how would he get it out? The Zen master didn't answer the question at all, but simply say, changed the subject. Finally, the officer got up to leave. And uh, he went over to the door and suddenly the Zen master called out, Oh, officer! And he turned around and said, Yes. The master said, There, it's out! When you are perfectly free to feel stuck or not stuck, then you're unstuck. Because actually, nothing can stick on the real mind. And you will find this out if you watch the flow of your thoughts. There is an expression in Chinese which means the flow of thoughts, or what we call in literary criticism, stream of consciousness. And they put the character for thought three times. Nyan, nyan, nyan. And so you will notice that thought follows thought follows thought when you are just ruminating. And those thoughts arise and go like waves on the water. All the time, they come and go. And when they go, they are as if they had never been here.
it is from this connecting of thoughts that we get the sensation that behind our thoughts there is a thinker who controls them and experiences them. Although the notion that there is a thinker is just one member in the stream of thoughts. And we use such absurd phrases, not only as thinking our thoughts, but feeling our feelings, seeing sights and hearing sounds. But you must understand, it is perfectly obvious, that seeing a sight is seeing, hearing a sound is hearing. Feeling a feeling is feeling. So in the same way, thinking a thought is thinking. But you get split-minded, you see, and so you uh, get I and me and the I who ought to or must control me uh, as uh, a sensation of some real entity that stands aside from thoughts and uh, chooses among them, controls them, regulates them, uh, and so on. Actually, this is a way to have one's thoughts not controlled. The more there is this duality of the separate thinker standing aside from the thoughts, the separate feeler watching or feeling the feelings, the more the stream of feelings is coaxed into self-protective activity, into getting more and more like a stuck record, the purposes of which are to protect and to aggrandize enlarge the status of the supposed thinker. When uh, Joshu, who was a Tang Dynasty Zen master, was asked, uh, he had made some reference to the enlightened mind being like a mind of a child. And he said, well, what is the mind of a child? And he said, a ball in a mountain stream. That is exactly what happens in the process of attachment, or what are called in Buddhist klesha, which mean disturbing confusions of the mind. And you see, this kind of confusion is something which, to which the human organism is peculiarly liable, because the human organism has language, has, you see, thinking is silent language and I mean language in the most inclusive sense of the word, not only words, but also images and numbers, notation. Just because then we can talk about anything, we can talk about talking, we can talk about thinking, we can talk about ourselves, as if we could stand aside and say, said I to myself, said I. All we are actually doing is making a second thought or thought stream which comments on the one that went before 
and then pretending that the second stream is a different stream than the first. It's very important to get rid of that illusion of duality between the thinker and the thought. So find out who is the thinker behind the thoughts? Who is the real genuine you? And so one of the methods that is used is shouting. The Zen master would say to a student, now, I want to hear you. I want to hear you say the word mu and really mean it. Because I want to hear not just the sound, but the person who says it. Now produce for me that. He says, mu! And the Zen teacher says, no, no, not yet. Mu! And he says, it's only coming from your throat. I want to hear your belly. No? And always, you see, it'll never come. While the person is trying to make a differentiation between a true move and a false move. <laughs>